Can a post-takeover Libertarian Party improve on its historical run of 2012 to 2020? By Matt Welch, published at Reason on June 3rd. Read to you here uh, June 4th. We'll see when Nancy Rommelman, who's busy in San Francisco reporting on the Chasey Boudin recall, can get it up at Paloma Media. I should also add that in addition to reading out this article, which has lots of graphs and hyperlinks as usual over at Reason.com, um, extended postscript on this one, people. So strap in. Are you ready? After succeeding last weekend in his half-decade-long quest to engineer a takeover of the Libertarian Party, Michael Heiss, founder and chair of the LP's now-dominant Mises Caucus, crowed on Twitter that the National Party had become, quote, the first institution to shake off wokeism in the country. Now that the party isn't a raging embarrassment, we can actually outreach to and funnel so many groups, Bitcoiners, people pissed at schools, the major podcast audiences, etc. Baked into Heiss's optimism is the assumption that the prior LP leaders, campaigns, and candidates that the Mises Caucus repudiates, including former three-time national chair Nicholas Sarwark, the team behind Joe Jorgensen's 2020 campaign, and above all, 2016 vice presidential candidate Bill Weld, repelled potential voters with milquetoast messaging. This may indeed be true. Political counterfactuals are stubbornly difficult to prove. But what is indisputable is that the Libertarian Party has never had an electoral stretch as successful on the presidential level as between 2012 and 2020. The Libertarian presidential campaigns of 2016 and 2020, derided by the Mises Caucus, produced the top two voting percentage results in party history. The 2012 Gary Johnson-Jim Gray ticket ranks a close fourth behind the well-financed Ed Clark-David Koch, yes, that David Koch, campaign in the third-party spike year of 1980. The LP's current streak of three consecutive bronze medal finishes is the longest of any third party since before the Great Depression. And I should add here, uh, supplementarily, well, that's being uh, redundant. I uh, got a great note from um, Richard R uh, Winger from uh, the fantastic Ballot Access News. If you want any kind of third-party uh, information, really, uh, that's the greatest website. Um, he responded saying, actually, it's the first time since 1876, 1880, and 1884 uh, when the Greenback Party came in third place. The Socialist Party narrowly missed three peats in 1900, 1912, 1924, and 1936. Thank you, Richard. You're an American hero. Moving on. The most paradoxically impressive result in that stretch might be the one most recent, Joe Jorgensen, with close to zero national name recognition and very little political charisma, produced the party's second highest presidential vote percentage in a year that was just brutal for non-major candidates. And she also bested Green Party nominee Howie Hawkins in all 50 states. The Mises Caucus, uh, which had backed Jacob Hornberger in the 2020 campaign, tends to be dismissive. Jorgensen, she put the nation to sleep, cracked comedian Robbie the Fire Bernstein during a libertarian convention adjacent taping of Dave Smith's Part of the Problem podcast. Before former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson ran in 2012, the high watermark for an LP presidential nominee's share of the non-democratic Republican vote was in 1988, when 48% of that electorate pulled the lever for future Mises Caucus hero Ron Paul. 
Johnson Gray topped that figure with 56.6% in 2012. Johnson Weld inched upwards to 57.2%, and the Jorgensen Spike Cohen ticket brought it all the way up to 64.5%. The gang that went 0 for 4 against Ralph Nader has, within three election cycles, become the third party in the United States. Will that streak continue now that the LP has been taken over by a caucus highly critical of the people who produced those comparative successes? 29 months is an eternity in modern politics. At this point, four years ago, the party's top three presumed 2020 candidates were Bill Weld, who would end up running and losing badly as a Republican, John McAfee, who was arrested in Spain on American tax evasion charges in October 2020 and found dead in his jail cell eight months later, and Adam Kokesh, who wound up finishing sixth. As of this very early moment, the two main potential 2024 libertarian presidential candidates are comedian podcaster Dave Smith, who has the strong backing of the Mises Caucus, and former Congressman Justin Amash, who in his convention keynote speech trolled the caucus by getting them to boo blind quotes from their namesake economist, Ludwig von Mises. Amash played Hamlet in the 2020 race and then abruptly dropped out just before the nominating convention, citing, among other factors, the adverse third-party electoral environment created by heightened negative polarization. Though many insiders suspected that LP dysfunction may have also scared him off. That external polarization and internal cat herding may well continue in the 2024 cycle and could yet dissuade Amash from running, let alone winning. He and other prospective non-Mises caucus candidates may not relish spending two-plus years being asked by reporters to respond to such headlines as Kentucky Libertarian Party compares vaccine passports to stars Jews wore in Holocaust and the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire ripped for tweeting, Libertarians suffer more oppression than black people. That kind of edgelord messaging, which correlates strongly with Mises Caucus' influence on state affiliates, has already turned some people away from the party, to which the general vibe from the victorious side has been good riddance. Quote, After decades of disappointing presidential campaigns and zero mainstream media coverage, the LP needed a new direction and the Ron Paul revolution needed an infrastructure to become influential in the political discussion in 2022 and beyond. The anonymous Being Libertarian website asserted hyperbolically in a post-convention victory lap. It means the Libertarian Party just got a lot less woke and the Libertarian Party will become more friendly to disgruntled Republicans. Whether there's an untapped reserve of anti-woke Ron Paul fans that can overcome the loss of previous LP voters turned off by the party's new messaging will depend in no small part on who ends up winning the Republican and even Democratic nominations. Former President Donald Trump remains the man to beat in the GOP, though his star is waning measurably, while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis moves up in the polls and in the prediction markets. It's hard to picture an edgier, more right-leaning libertarian social media game competing meaningfully against the master. Meanwhile, down in Florida, DeSantis is growing more Trumpy by the day. President Joe Biden, well, he's not only old and unpopular, a majority of Democrats and Democrat leaners want another candidate to run in the 2024 primaries. On the one hand, you'd expect a redux of Biden versus Trump with their demonstrated track records of government expanding incompetence 
and alienating of independence to be the perfect opening for a youthful and articulate, also clean, small government guy like Amash. On the other, Trump is a one-man base rallier for Democrats. The dark economic clouds on the horizon favor a pendulum swing against the incumbent, and both sides are on the verge of being heavily motivated by abortion politics. That's not enough to scramble your calculations. Close your eyes and imagine a DeSantis versus Kamala Harris race with Dave Smith lobbing rhetorical bombs and insult comedy from the sidelines. Another potential X factor is competition from other third parties. While the Greens seem relegated to also-ran status as long as lefty voters remember Trump versus Hillary Clinton, Andrew Yang's centrist forward party is starting to achieve ballot qualifications, and the kind of sort of Christian Democratic uh, American Solidarity Party had an earlier start as well. There's still plenty of time between now and 2024 for party building, though that work is a slog. And libertarians, for all of their foibles, have been stomping the competition on those grounds for more than a decade now. At present, in the absence of national political attention for the foreseeable future, much will depend on how the Mises Caucus decides to flex its power. Newly elected party chair Angela McArdle, in her winning pitch to libertarian delegates, repeatedly stressed the primacy of bold messaging, particularly on social media. Messaging is the face of the party, McArdle wrote. Social media is usually the first thing someone sees when they interact with us as an organization. Social media has changed the political landscape. The days of reading about something have been replaced by the experience of interacting with something. Unfortunately, our message at the national level has a very self-conscious tone. We need to move away from low self-esteem messaging. So is that a license for outrage courting edgelordia? Not so fast, McArdle insists. Quote, Simply put, bold messaging is messaging that is not watered down and does not take an apologizing, embarrassed tone about libertarian topics. Is bold messaging shitposting? No. Bold messaging is courageous, and it tells the truth. If in 2012 you were to have told Gary Johnson and retired Judge Jim Gray, decent gentlemen both, that the future success of the party they were then helping bring to the next level would depend in part on the line between shitposting and telling the truth, they would have probably looked at you funny. Yet that is the world that both the Libertarian Party and the rest of the United States now find themselves in. McArdle and her winning cohort still have some time before the outrage archaeologists in the competition and in the press start combing in earnest through the old tweets and podcast episodes. We shall soon see how much the new Libertarian Party orients itself around social media controversy and what kind of audience that attracts. End of article, but not end of this podcast. Why? Because about a half hour after this was posted... The new management of the Libertarian Party finally started tweeting from the party's national Twitter account. A very long-awaited moment, considering the heavy amount of emphasis this played in Angela McArdle's campaign for party chair. So here was one of the very first tweets. The Libertarian Party is now a home for Ron Paul supporters. We welcome you with open arms. We represent the tradition of Mises and Rothbard and are eternally grateful to Lou Rockwell, Jeff Deist, and everyone at the Mises Institute for keeping their legacy alive. The very next tweet in this string said, We do not throw our heroes under the bus to gain acceptance from the regime. We regard the regime as criminal. There is so very much text and subtext behind these tweets that it's worth teasing out a bit. 
Marie Rothbard, Jeff Deist, and I'm sorry for mispronouncing your name, Jeff, uh, and especially Lou Rockwell, all here declared by the Libertarian Party as heroes with an aura of untouchability, are each very controversial figures within the small-L libertarian movement, not least for their participation in and or perceived apologetics for the self-styled paleo-libertarian strategy of the early 1990s, which aspired to rile up the rednecks, their term, not mine, in support of rolling back the welfare state and giving police more power. To give you a taste of that effort, let me read from my very first column as Reason Editor-in-Chief back in 2008. Kind of a long quote. Cops must be unleashed and allowed to administer instant punishment, Rothbard wrote in a manifesto titled Right-Wing Populism, a Strategy for the Paleo Movement, which appeared in the January 1992 Rockwell-Rothbard Report. The historical model for this new program, Senator Joe McCarthy whom Rothbard praised as fascinating, exciting, and having a sense of dynamism, of fearlessness. The modern-day exemplar? Right-wing radical David Duke. Rothbard and Rockwell rejected the upper-middle-class yuppie suburbanites of Beltway-based kowtowing libertarian think tanks and instead wanted to lead the charge against the cultural and social decay which agitates the American public. They were closely aligned with Ron Paul, whose newsletters from this era are nearly indistinguishable from the Rockwell-Rothbard report. They sounded regular alarms against the coming race war, focused constantly on cases of minority violence, and rallied around pitchfork Pat Buchanan for president in 1992. End quote. So why is the new Libertarian Party management singling these guys out for aspiration and heroism? Well, in part... Because the old party management they just replaced singled all of them out for criticism back in the summer of 2017 after the Charlottesville Unite the Right Tiki Torch rally, whose participants included at least a couple of people who had identified as libertarians and which resulted in the killing of Heather Heyer. In the wake of that awful moment, the libertarian national leadership decided to draw a thick line separating the party from the alt-right. Then-party chair Nicholas Sarwark called the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama, the preferred choice of actual Nazis. Then-party vice chair Arvin Vora, who would later turn out to be quite the edgelord himself, went after Mises Institute president Jeff Deist, I can't, I can't, this, I don't know why I can't pronounce it, for having delivered a speech advocating libertarian nationalism a couple of weeks before Charlottesville that concluded with the line, Blood and soil and God and nation still matter to people. Libertarians ignore this at the risk of irrelevance. Vora charged that, quote, Blood and soil is a central Nazi and nationalist idea. At the current time, Mises Institute has been turned into a sales funnel for the white nationalist branch of the alt-right, end quote. So you can imagine such heavy criticism, calling them Nazis was very polarizing, pushing people into with-us-or-against-us camps, and it's really the key background to the whole Mises Caucus takeover conflict. Now, I hasten to add that all the above makes it seem like questions of race and racism, wokeism and anti-wokeism, are central to the self-conceptions of both the Mises Caucus and the moderates they just routed. That is not at all necessarily the case. The Rothbard style as one might call it, is also about pugilism. It's about hating the state. It's also about hurling contempt at anyone and anything they deem redolent of what they call the regime. Go back to that early tweet. 
We do not throw our heroes under the bus to gain acceptance from the regime. We regard the regime as criminal. That language is very, very intentional. There's a video that uh, Mises types like to pass around on YouTube of Lou Rockwell describing the regime libertarian and the regime libertarian's preference for cocktail parties over principle. It's filled with silent video footage, while you hear Rockwell say these things, uh, various uh, perceived sellouts, including Gary Johnson, Bill Weld, Joe Jorgensen, Justin Amash, Nick Sarwark, Nick Gillespie, and me. I made it, ma. So, until further notice, the Libertarian Party will not throw heroes like Lou Rockwell under the bus. And by all means, do check out lourockwell.com if you want to see what heroism looks like in action. Uh, but it, its most recent national candidates and party leadership, eh, they might uh, soon develop a taste for tire treads. Okay, goodbye.